Our message this morning is entitled, His Face Was As a Flint. And we'll put on pause our series through the book of Titus. We're just about through with that book, with only a message or two remaining. But we'll put that on pause today as we approach the remembrance of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord over this next week. Today begins the week up to Easter, a day when most Christians think more specifically about the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the resurrection being the most telling and proclaiming part of the Lord's ministry as He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He was not merely a prophet. He was not merely a man. He was not merely a moral teacher who practiced an interesting and controversial form of Judaism in the first century who roused up trouble from the Jews and eventually the Romans and was put to death and then followed as a philosopher. But Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, by His resurrection from the dead. And as Jesus said in John chapter 10, I and my Father are one. To be the Son of God makes Him one with the Father. The Jews, recognizing that, took up stones to stone Him and attempted to execute Him for their accusation of blasphemy because He claimed to be the Son of God. And according to the resurrection, His resurrection from the dead, Jesus is the Son of God. He was declared to be such with power. And so this week is a week that we begin to focus a little more specifically on that. To be clear, there isn't a command in Scripture for Christians to, in a special way, commemorate the anniversary of His resurrection. There's no instruction from Paul to set aside one day a year and remember that. In fact, the memorial and the commemoration of the first century church was something that happened every week. And if you read the book of Acts, in every single public sermon, the apostles appealed to the resurrection of Christ as the absolute proof of His divinity, the proof of the reality of the truths of the gospel, the authenticity of His church in New Testament worship over Old Testament worship that was given through the ministry of a man named Moses. They appealed to the resurrection as the chief fact proving everything that they said was true. You know, the resurrection of Christ, though it is contested today, is a historic fact. Some, I could call them Johnny-come-lately, modern Higher critics dare even question the existence of the Lord Jesus. They say, well, he probably never even existed in the first place, but that was never a contested fact in history until recent times. Everyone knew that Jesus Christ lived, that he was crucified, that he claimed to be the Messiah, that he rose again, and that his disciples went to their death preaching what they had seen about him. It was never a contested fact until now with the higher critic. You know, you could live enough 
time in this world, and there might be men and women who denied that Abraham Lincoln existed or that George Washington existed. You get far enough away from a historical fact and people can claim it never even happened. It could be canceled because it isn't politically expedient, perhaps. But the resurrection of Jesus, his identity, the reality of what he did and what he experienced is an, a historic fact that cannot even be contested. And in every sermon, the apostles remembered it. We sometimes have opposition from people who say that Saturday is the day that Christ ought to be worshipped because Saturday is the Sabbath in the Old Testament. Why might the disciples meet on Sunday, the first day, instead of Saturday, the seventh day? Because every single first day of the week was the weekly remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised again on the first day of the week. And so that Old Testament Sabbath, Christ fulfilling it, was replaced in the life of a believer with the first day, Lord's Day, the day when the Corinthians met, Paul references in the book of 1 Corinthians, the day when Paul met with the disciples in the book of Acts as he meets in Miletus with the elders of the church of Ephesus and they meet and they worship and they break bread and he preaches until midnight. They meet on the first day of the week because that is the day of the week that the Christians worshipped. Above all other days in which they worshipped because that is the weekly anniversary of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You might think, well, Christians in the first century didn't celebrate Easter, and I would say they celebrated it 52 times a year at least. The specific festival that Jesus gave to commemorate his resurrection, his crucifixion, actually, his communion, this due in remembrance of him, and as oft as we eat of it, we do show his death. Until he comes. Understanding Christian liberty to look at a day like Easter, in my mind, it isn't be cautious and not celebrate it on a special day. It's the more the merrier. The more you celebrate it, the more you remember it, the better that you will be. Observances of Easter, which is next week. Observances of Easter date back to very early Christianity. It's often said these are merely Roman Catholic holidays that we've baptized and incorporated into American Christianity, but observances of Easter date back to the second century. That's the 100s. The people who were baptized by the apostles observe this day of Palm Sunday today. Easter Sunday next Sunday. And so it is very historic, Christians remembering what he went through, hearing the stories of those that saw it, began to observe it and to think about it in a special way. Now to be very clear, next Sunday, you're not going to see me outside hiding eggs. I'm not going to be talking about bunnies. I'm going to be talking about Jesus, just like we're doing today. Just like we'll think of this week in our own personal reflections of 
the crucifixion week, we'll be thinking about Jesus. We'll be thinking about his passion, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Today is a day that we call Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter, and we call it Palm Sunday because the Sunday before Easter Sunday, the Sunday that begins Crucifixion Week, it's referred to in other orders of people as Holy Week. I don't refer to it as Holy Week. I refer to it as Easter, but I won't get mad at someone for using that language. I won't storm out of a room. I understand what they have reference to, and if Jesus is preached, then God be praised that he be preached this time of year and that his children around the world think about something that is the offering of Christ that saved us from our sins. You might think, well, they don't understand as much about it as we want them to understand about it, but praise God that they're thinking about it. And maybe for a moment, even though they may not understand the truth as it is completely in grace, in their heart they can take joy and rejoice in the fact that Jesus died for them. This Sunday is the day that we call Palm Sunday, and it commemorates the riding in of Jesus on the colt, the foal of an ass. It's not a cuss word. It has reference to a donkey, and it's the 1611 word for donkey. Rides in on a donkey's colt into Jerusalem that began, set in motion the events that eventually culminated in his crucifixion and his resurrection. Thinking about Palm Sunday as we have come to it today, and we'll read the passage from which we get this term, Palm Sunday. Jesus' ministry was largely in Galilee. If you ever look at a map and you see exactly how small the Sea of Galilee is, you read about it in the Word of God. You read about where the disciples cross over the sea. And if you and I were to get into a a little sailboat or a rowboat and attempt to cross the Gulf of Mexico overnight, we would be sorely disappointed. But they would get in the boats and enter out, embark on the Sea of Galilee, and overnight they arrive to the other side of the sea. If you ever see the Sea of Galilee, if you turn to the back of your Bible and you have maps in the back, you can look at that and compare it to the Mediterranean Sea. Paul would sail in the Mediterranean and come across a storm, a Eurachlodon is what it was referred to, and it would beat the ship, and the ship would be filling with water, and they're casting water out, and they're lightening the load, and everyone's terrified, and they're thinking of jumping ship, but Paul says, you can't can't jump ship. No one will be saved unless they stay in the vessel, and he had reference to save from the storm. Eventually, it plows into land, and the waves beat it into pieces, and that's in the Mediterranean Sea. But Jesus' ministry was spent largely on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, a tiny little sea. We have lakes in the U.S. that are larger than the Sea of Galilee. You might think, why then were the waves so high? There there are storms that hit the Great Lakes that have sank vessels, that have destroyed ships. If you ever cross the Tennessee River when it's in a bad storm, you know how much waves and tempestuousness just the Tennessee River can get in the middle of a serious storm like we had last night at four in the morning. Any of you get awakened last night at four in the morning, wind and rain and thunder and lightning? There I was watching a Facebook live stream of the poor meteorologist who was also on the air when I went to bed at midnight. 
And there he is still pointing to clouds and weather. A bad storm comes upon the wind and it's very tempestuous. Jesus visited Jerusalem very seldom. He visited at festivals. He visited at feasts, you might say. When they had Passover, he would go. He would go as the law required it. He was there in the Feast of Dedication, which is what we know today as Hanukkah in winter. And he walked in Solomon's porch in John 10. He was there on occasion. But most of his ministry was spent outside of Jerusalem in the regions of Galilee and occasionally Samaria. And he traveled about and he did good and he preached and he healed and he preached and he healed. He divided loaves and fishes. He fed people. He cared for people. He received worship. He was scoffed at by haters. But this week, he enters into Jerusalem for the last time. It's amazing the other times that Jesus was in Jerusalem. He had one of two reactions with men that he shunned. First, there were groups of people that sought to take him by force and make him king. The Messiah has come. It is as Jesus of Nazareth. We will make him our king. We will expel Herod. We will dethrone him. And we will run the Romans out of Jerusalem. Many of the first century Jews were militant in their hatred of the Romans because of their rule over them. And they sought to repel them with the edge of the sword. Simon, one of the apostles, the zealot, was named that, Zelotes, because he was one of the zealots who wanted to repel the Romans with, the, with military might. Interestingly enough, you have another apostle, Matthew the publican, who was the polar opposite in everything that was his backstory, and yet those two men found unity in Christ and the gospel because the gospel is more important than any difference we have in this world. Another reaction that people had as Jesus preached was to desire to kill him. In John's gospel, anytime Jesus referenced going back into Jerusalem, what did people say? Lord, last time you were there, they tried to kill you. As Lazarus is dead and Jesus begins to head towards there to, to raise him from the dead, the disciples remind him, Lord, they'll kill you. They've tried to kill you before. And Jesus says, I'm going. And they say, well, we'll go die with him. They understood the hatred that men had for Christ. Over and over in Jesus' ministry, you'll read when men took up stones to stone him or they went to drag him out of the city and cast him headlong off of a cliff. You'll read the note that his time was not yet come. But this time, this moment, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, his time had come. He would go into Jerusalem and he would be betrayed. He would be arrested. He wouldn't disappear from the midst of them as he did so many times, literally vanishing out of their sight. He would go as a lamb dumb before the shearers, opening not his mouth, dragged of weak, sinful men into a place of judgment, 
submitting to his ultimate death when he could have merely spoken the words to obliterate every single one of them or call for angels from heaven who would come and slaughter every man who withstood him. And yet he went to his death, understanding he had come into the world to die and to die for his people to save them from their sins. Matthew chapter 21. I confess to you that I intended to continue our study on Titus today, and last night at about 11 o'clock, this message began heavily weighing on my heart. Usually my sermon notes are compressed with 10 font and barely fit on the page. Today it's 12 font, and I've got half a page because most of this is simply something that's in the heart that I have to express. One week prior to his crucifixion, Jesus enters the holy city. We'll read that in a moment. As he's here in Jerusalem, he does a number of things. One of the first things he does is purge the temples of the charlatans, the thieves. And I love to make the joke, back when I was a little kid, it was the fad for every little guy and girl that went to church or youth group or Sunday school and in my school to have a little bracelet that said WWJD. What would Jesus do? And I love to remind you that Flipping tables and chasing people from a building with a weapon is not outside of the scope of what Jesus would do. He goes into the temple and he purges it. One of the first things he does, if not the first thing he does when he arrives. Why? Because his house is a house of prayer. And there were people who had made it a den of thieves. They bought and sold in the temple. Is there anything wrong with buying and selling? No, the law gives all kinds of regulations for buying and selling. Buying and selling is a part of life. And Jesus taught the workman is worthy of his wage. There's nothing wrong with buying and selling, but in that place, buying and selling was a sin. It was not to be a house of merchandise. Another thing that he does is the tables of the money changers who exchanged currency from one type to another and tack on a fee on top of that. He's so livid at that. Why would they need currency? To buy and sell the sacrifices. If you come from several days away and you have to come to Jerusalem and you have to offer a lamb or a bullock, you don't want to bring the bullock all the way with you and so you have to buy it when you get there and if you have a different type of currency, you exchange it and people bought and they sold, they made money. It was lucrative. It was an opportunity for them to take advantage of someone's need for worship. And Jesus is livid about that. He flips the tables. Another thing that Jesus does is he preached publicly. To some people, he preached comforting messages. To other people, he taught in parables that literally condemned them to whom he was speaking. As they were offended with him, he began to teach 
and to condemn them, the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees. And he rebuked and condemned every single sinful practice among the religious elite of Jerusalem and Judaism in that day. The disciples were impressed with the buildings of the temple, all the gold and all of the elaborate architecture on that old temple that had been ransacked again after it was rebuilt following Daniel's day. Herod builds it up a another time after it's been damaged and destroyed, and it was absolutely adorned. And the disciples say, Lord, do you see all these buildings? Jesus says, there's not a stone here that's going to be left standing that's not going to be cast down. And that would happen when that nation was judged of God in A.D. 70. God judged them. The only thing that remains is the so-called Wailing Wall, which some people doubt had anything even to do with the temple. But everything else there has been cast to the ground. Not one stone left standing because what Jesus said came true. Matthew 24 and 25 is a sermon about that and the end of the world. And because we look back through history and we see that one of those things that Jesus prophesied came true... We look to the future understanding and knowing that the other thing that Jesus prophesied of in Matthew 24 and 25 came, will come true. That is the second coming of Christ and the destruction of this world, the deliverance of his people, and the judgment of the wicked. And may God be praised. He would go about teaching in this week. He would keep the Passover. And as he keeps the Passover, he would preach privately to his disciples, of all the trouble that would soon befall them, of his crucifixion, of his going away to be with the Father after his ascension to glory, 40 days after his resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, not in the new birth, for these men had been born again. They believed God the Father had revealed Christ to them, but the Spirit would be with them in a very personal sense the way Jesus had been with them. He would keep the Passover. He would wash the disciples' feet. He would institute the communion service. He would leave after singing a hymn and departing with them and pray all night in the Garden of Gethsemane in agony over what was about to happen to him so that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And then lastly... As you read in John 18, they came to arrest him with swords and spears and shields. They arrest him. They take him. They try him three times, three mock trials. And then being innocent, as Pilate says, this man has done nothing worthy of death and washes his hands before them to show that his hands are clean of his blood, he sends Jesus away to the cross where he would be crucified. And one week after this, on Sunday, Jesus would be resurrected from the dead, declaring his victory over every enemy, the last enemy being death itself, He has put all enemies under his feet. 
Matthew 21.1, they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, under the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two of his disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Now you might think this sounds like Grand Theft Auto. Not the game, please don't play the game. I mean the crime. Dude parks his donkey on the curb and these two guys come and steal it. I mean, what would you do? My Impala's driving off. What in the world? Well, Jesus needs it. What? <laughs> if any man say aught unto you, obviously, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. Jesus needs these animals. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought it, they put him on their clothes as a makeshift saddle, set him thereon, and he begins to ride into the holy city. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In another gospel account, you read where they took palm leaves and waved them at him and put the palm leaves before him. Hence the term for today on the calendar, Palm Sunday. Commemorating when Jesus rode into the holy city. When he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? Who is this man? Now we'll see in just a moment that they knew exactly what was happening. If someone rode into Huntsville on a donkey, we would not understand what was going on because there's no reason for it to begin with. I think the Amish have arrived. Why is there a man on a donkey? Think about how many times men had ridden donkeys into the holy city. And it was no big thing. But this time, this man on this beast, in this moment, in this city, these people knew the significance, as we'll see in a moment. This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. You see, Jesus was known by those in the first century not as Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed and it's an adjective. We say Jesus Christ because he's Jesus anointed, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, the prophet of God. He has come. This passage fulfills, this occurrence of Palm Sunday fulfills two extraordinarily significant prophecies from the Old Testament. And I want to share them with you. We read over both of them. Zechariah chapter 9. You see in Matthew chapter 21, 
This was done, which was fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, thy king cometh unto thee. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 is the actual occurrence of this prophecy in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! What will they shout? Well, you're going to listen to that in a minute, but not from this passage. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just. Now, there's a sermon in that word that could spend the rest of the time that we have before you today elaborating on. Jesus is just. I was in a conversation recently with a brother who was mixed up in his verbiage and his words, and he thought that God is symmetrical, that we refer to him as benevolent, but maybe you could refer to him as malevolent because that means bad and God does bad things, so maybe he's some sort of dualistic deity. And I said, no, a thousand times no. First of all, the root of that word malevolent is the same root for malice, which means evil, and malice literally means depravity. There is no depravity in God's judgment of the wicked. Even when what the Old Testament would call evil or calamity is done, it is good calamity because God is just. Acts of God's judgment upon men are based upon his holiness, his justice, and their sinfulness. When a criminal is executed, no one says the government acted with malice. They acted with equity. And they acted with justice. We have to be very careful the words we use to describe God's character, His righteousness, His holiness. If there's one thing that the Bible emphatically declares, it is that God is holy and just. He is just, this king. Think about all the unjust kings that Israel and Judah had in their existence. A few years ago, Brother Hewlin made a list of the kings of Israel and Judah, and he noted how Judah had good kings and bad kings, and it seemed like Israel had nothing but bad kings. But this is a king that is just. Unlike kings like Ahab, this is a just king. Think about the so-called king of the Jews in that day, Herod. How unjust he was. And the Tetrarchs, how unjust they were. This is a just king. He is just and having salvation. Remember Zacchaeus who climbs a sycamore tree and Jesus visits his house and he tells him, this day is salvation, come to his house. What does that mean? Jesus is salvation. And salvation darkened his doorstep. He comes having salvation. Lowly. What a concept for America, where pride epitomizes our society and self-centeredness and self-will and what we want and what we think. Jesus is lowly. He is humble. I am meek and lowly, he said in Matthew. Riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Matthew 21 literally fulfills the prophecy of the coming of the king in Zechariah chapter 9. 
The king has arrived. That's not the only passage that's fulfilled in Jesus' entry, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Psalm 118. You might turn there with me. You notice as Jesus rides into Jerusalem that people cried a very specific word. What did they cry? Hosanna! What does Zechariah 9.9 say? Cry! Proclaim it, Jerusalem, you daughters of Zion. Proclaim it! What do they proclaim? Psalm 118. Let's begin in verse 21. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. That ought to perk your ears up. He enters into Jerusalem with what? Salvation. Thou art become my salvation. This next passage will be familiar to you Bible readers. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. What is the stone that was rejected of the builders? Jesus. The cornerstone. The stone upon which everything else is built in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and yet the Old Testament builders refused it. The powers that be, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the chief priests, the high priest, the so-called King Herod, the builders rejected the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, the sending of his son into the world. Verse 24, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. How many times have you quoted that or heard that quoted first thing in the morning when you wake up? And it's fine to think about it because every day is a day that God has made. Please understand, beloved, this day which the Lord hath made is the day of the cross. In fact, this is the very chapter that splits Scripture directly in the center. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The day of the crucifixion of Christ. How do you know? Aside from what we've already read, continue reading in Psalm 118. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. This is a messianic psalm. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus told them in Jerusalem that they would no more see his face until they cried, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This passage, Psalm 118, is as much about Jesus as Matthew 21 is about Jesus. Inside info, spoilers. This entire book is about Jesus. Verse 25 of Matthew, or excuse me, Psalm 118. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. Save now, 
comes from two Hebrew words, yasha'ana, and I probably butchered the pronunciation, Brother Jesse, but I'm not fluent in Hebrew. You can ask him to correct me on that later. But these two words go into the Greek language as the word that transliterates into the English language as Hosanna. When they cry out as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They're literally crying out the words of Psalm 118, understanding that that was the day that God has made, that Christ has come. He has brought salvation with him. The king has gotten on the colt, the foal of an ass. He is lowly. He is riding into Jerusalem. And salvation was with him. And so they cry out, Hosanna, save now. I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Now this begs the question, which is the primary focus of what we want to bring out of this to you today. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as Jesus goes to Jerusalem, understanding everything that you now know was going to happen to him, he enters in and people worship and then people begin to scoff at the worshipers and scoff at him. He rebukes them. He flips the money changers' tables. He chases people out of the temple. He preaches publicly all week. He keeps the Passover He institutes the Lord's Supper. He washes his disciples' feet. He prays all night. He's crucified. He's in the tomb. And he rises again. The question is, did Jesus know everything that was going to happen to him this week? If I knew that I was going into a city where I would be received with applause... And just a few days later, crucified by the same people who praised me. What would you do? Some of the tongues who screamed screamed Hosanna, proclaimed Hosanna, undoubtedly screamed, crucify him, crucify him. As he stood before Pilate and Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. What would you do? Maybe we could turn to the book of Jonah for an example of how I would respond. I don't like to be beat up and criticized any more than you do. Did Jesus know? Did He intentionally go understanding what would happen? Isaiah chapter 50. Perhaps one of the words that we read in Isaiah 50 will be of particular interest to you here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. Let's begin in verse 5. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. That begins to get our attention. I wasn't rebellious. Now, who sent Christ to die? The Father. God sent His Son Made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them which were under the law. Galatians chapter 4. God sent His Son. 
And Jesus came into the world not to do his own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent him. John chapter 6. I'm not rebellious. I gave my back to the smiters, prophesying of the scourging of the Roman military upon his back. And my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. You see, men in the first century that were Jews often had beards. The Romans were often clean-shaven. But Jewish men wore beards. There was a time when, I believe it was David and his men who were taken captive, and they shaved their beards and they waited until they grew back to leave. My cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Gives you a whole nother layer of understanding in the suffering of Christ. They literally ripped the beard off his face. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. One thing that we do not tolerate out of our children is spitting at another person. And I say, don't you dare spit at your sister or your brother. Don't you spit at someone. They spit in the face of Jesus. There's hardly a more degrading offense to someone than to spit in their face. It's a metaphor for being offended and insulted by someone. They spit in his face. And he hid, his, he hid not his face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. The word confounded means ashamed. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. He that is, he is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul in Hebrews uses that as an expression to describe the aging of the world. Some of you that have lived many decades in the world might look at that. Sentence and think about it as the aging of your bodies. You wax old as doth a garment. You know, fabric, once it gets old, it doesn't go back to the way that it was before. It's just old. Thin, holy, blemished, scarred, maybe sewed up in spots. Well, that's your body and that's the universe. Wax is old as doth a garment. What did we read in verse 7? Therefore have I set my face like a flint. He set his face firm like a stone towards Jerusalem to go and to do the work that God had given him. Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem and he determined to go there and to suffer that of sinful men and eventually even suffering the wrath of his Father in heaven. Yes, Jesus knew. In Luke chapter 9, a statement is made, and to be very clear, that isn't his heading into Jerusalem on that final day, but twice in Luke chapter 9 we read that he set his face towards Jerusalem. And I think that Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 
7 is directly in the mind of the writer Luke when he wrote those words, set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus was determined to go and to suffer. Isaiah 53, beginning in the latter verses of Isaiah 52, give us the suffering of Jesus. He would have been acquainted with this. They would have been acquainted with this. And the word there that epitomizes everything we read is suffering. This is one of the hymns of God's suffering servant in Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Isaiah 52, 13. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Many were astonished or astonished at thee. His visage, his appearance was so marred more than any man. He was beaten to such a pulp that he was hardly recognizable as a man. As his mother sat and watched from a distance as he hung upon the tree, what do you think her heart felt as she looked and saw that little boy that she had raised hanging there on that cross? Not even looking like the same man that he looked before. Beaten and bloodied, covered in blood and holes in his flesh from the crown of thorns that's probably still upon his brow. The beard of his face plucked off, his eyes swollen From the fists that impacted him, his visage was marred, his form more than the sons of men, form having reference to more than merely his face. He probably dug down, dug down, tore into the bone or to the bone when they scourged him across his back. His visage and his form was marred. So shall he sprinkle many nations with his blood. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them they shall see, that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The second question answers the first. Who believes the report? To those to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. And the arm of the Lord is another title in the word of God for Jesus Christ. He, Christ, the arm of the Lord, shall grow up before him as a tender plant. As a root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Think about the apostles that ran and hid and denied and claimed they didn't even know him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We thought God had abandoned him. Why did they think that? Because they were trusting that God would send a national political Messiah. God's people have been mistaking spirituality for politics since Jesus' day, and it's gotten no better since. Anyway, that's extra. It won't cost you anything more. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. With his what? Stripes. Being whipped across the back with a scourge. You might think, well, that's talking about really sinful people, like all those people Jesus helped in his ministry, but I'm so much better than that. No, Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us. 
all of His sheep. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Imputing our iniquity to Him, and in His crucifixion, He gives unto us His righteousness. He suffered what you deserve, and He has given you His holiness so that you get what you didn't deserve. And that is glory with the Father and with His Son Christ for all of eternity. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not His mouth. He didn't complain about it. He didn't try to get out of it. He didn't argue His way denying what they had accused him of, but he went as a lamb dumb before the shearers. If you really want to know why he had to do that, you read John chapter 18 as they come to arrest him. Whom seek ye? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. Now the KJV says he, but he's in italics because literally it's the Greek word for I am. And when Jesus uttered those words, I am, the divine title from Exodus chapter 3, they fell backwards to the ground as he pronounced his divinity to them, his deity. He went as a lamb dumb before the shears because had he merely spoken, he could have obliterated the universe. I am. And yet he goes as a lamb dumb before the shears. He was taken from prison and judgment. Who shall declare his generation? That's you. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Was he stricken? Whose people? God's people. He made his grave with the wicked, dying between two thieves, and with the rich in his death, being placed in a rich man's new tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, telling us that there was suffering that Christ experienced upon the cross that you and I know nothing about. So brutal that God Himself turns the sun off for three hours as Jesus hangs. Men were not even able to look upon Him. It is mysterious. When thou shalt make His soul an offering for sin, redemption wasn't complete until Jesus died, and He died when He gave up the ghost and cried out with a loud voice, It is finished. But when his soul was made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and what? And be satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied through the death of his son Jesus. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant, the one that suffered, the Christ, justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sins of many and made intercession for, their trans, uh, for the transgressors. How can he divide the spoil to someone who has poured out his soul unto death and died? Because he raised him again on the third day. And we declare his generation. I have half a page of notes, and that's half of the notes. Jesus knew these passages. Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They wag the tongue at me. They scoff at me. Dogs have compassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Jesus knew those passages. Sure, 
Jesus knew those passages as the Word that was made flesh, the God that created and inspired, created the universe, he inspired the Word. But Jesus knew those passages as Jesus the man. As he prayed in the garden, he was in agony over what was about to happen to him. I would encourage you this week to read Matthew chapter 26 and Matthew chapter 27. I'll summarize. 26, 64 through 68, they beat him. Chapter 27, verses 26 through 31, they beat him again. They put a crown of thorns upon his head and dug it into his flesh. Chapter 27, verses 31 through 33, they make him carry his cross in public shame. Women follow him, wailing after him. And in mercy, he tells them, weep not for me, weep for your children. Because they're going to experience the judgment for what your nation has done. Chapter 27, verses 35 through 38, they crucified him. As bad as it was to suffer at the hands of men, 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks about God bruising his son, as we just read from Isaiah 53. And lastly, John chapter 19 and verse 30, Jesus cries out, I thirst. They give him vinegar to drink. He cries out with a loud voice, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Now concerning the narrative and the historical account of the crucifixion and resurrection, we're going to leave off here and leave these thoughts in your mind until next week. Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up exactly where we left off with it is finished. And we'll speak to what that means as declared by His resurrection. But as we bring our thoughts today to a close, did Jesus know what would happen to Him in Jerusalem as He set His face as a flint and rode in to the exclaims of Hosanna? Jesus knew every bit of what he was going to suffer in Jerusalem. And he endured it all, despising the shame of it. Why? Well, let's look at the answer to that in Hebrews 12, 2 in closing. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus endure this shame? Because the thought of you being with Him in glory for all of eternity to Him was joy. He loved you so much that he was full of joy so that he would endure all of that so you could be with him. And he 
endured it with joy. Let's pray. Father, we don't understand so much of the depth of the love that you have for us, that you would send your son to die for us, and that he would knowingly endure everything that he endured some two millennia ago for the joy of having rotten sinners like me and like all of your people outside of him, outside of their identity in Christ, with you in glory. We pray, Father, that that this would strike us in our emotion, that it would move us to shame, yes, but to tearful gratitude and from there to praise and from praise, Father, to the sort of public evangelistic fervor that your early church had where they would endure even persecution simply joyfully to suffer for your cause. Forgive us of our sins, Father, and thank you so much for our Savior who came to bleed and to die because you loved us that much. We pray in Jesus' name and say, Amen.